Unlike Jack, I can't remember more than one question at a time. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll proceed in that way. I don't really sure how to ask it as a question. We had cheese and bread and things like that. And I had a couple of pieces of cheese and a couple of pieces of bread, and I thought, gee, I'd like another piece. And I saw, ah, greed arising, and not exactly greed, but what would you call it, you know, desire. And so I thought, well, I'll go out and have that. And I walked out and got another piece of bread and another piece of cheese and munched it down and enjoyed it. Supremely. <laughs> I, I kind of kept waiting for a subtitle that said, and the moral is. Uh, a lot of times I feel like I'm observing things going on, and it's as if, it's kind of as, as if that's all, all there is, as opposed to like affecting some change, some, some movement. In other words, you, you might see something unwholesome arising inside of yourself, and then uh, no, no overwhelming spark of lightning hits you and says, boy, now I'm free of that. It's not going to happen to me anymore. You know? Does that make any sense? Yes. It's actually the subject of the next talk that I'm going to give. <laughs> so I, I'm a little hesitant to kind of say it all now. But it has to do, and you can... <clears throat> actually, this would be a good introduction, you know, and you can work with it, and so then the, the talk will have more uh, connectedness, perhaps, with your experience. Explore in your practice what the meaning and the experience of restraint is. Because it's a very important quality of mind to understand in terms of our practice. And really your question has to do with understanding what restraint is, how we can apply it, when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate. That's the issue around the question. And I'd like to talk in much greater detail about it, but for now, simply consider in your experience, consider that quality. about Christianity and Buddhism, or more precisely, is there anything in Christianity which corresponds to the path and karma and enlightenment? The question was to discuss um, whether there are parallels between Buddhism and Christianity, whether there are concepts in Christianity of the path and karma and enlightenment, Last summer I went, for the past two summers, I've participated in a Buddhist Christian conference which is held at Naropa Institute in Boulder. 
And the Christians' representatives on the panel and faculty mostly come from the contemplative orders. And I was struck when people, when we were all speaking from the level of the silent mind, how many similarities there were. And when we were speaking from the level of the concepts, that's when there were a lot of differences. It's not to say that, I mean, obviously in the traditions there are tremendous differences. There was one faculty member there who was from the Eastern Orthodox wing of the church. And his whole point of reference were the collection of teachings of the, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, the Philokalia. It's, it's the collection of the teachings of the Desert Fathers. Um, and he was quite interesting because he had gone to the seminary, to the Eastern Orthodox Seminary, and had you know, listened to all the teachings. But he was quite unique in that he decided actually to do what they said to do, <laughs> rather than simply study them. And as he was giving his talk, his presentation, there were the most amazing parallels using that whole vocabulary, it's as if he was talking about dependent origination and the effect of greed, hatred, and delusion and the path of mindfulness and attention. And so it re, there was a, a reawakening of appreciation for the wisdom, for the universal wisdom that is in all of us when we pay attention. That it's not limited to any one culture or any one sect. On the other hand, people do very different things with their minds. And so it's not to say that every path goes to the same place, because there are many, there are many ways of developing different aspects of the mind. He happened to be talking within that Christian context about the path of mindfulness. And so what he had to say was just the same. I'm used to fear and anxiety being intimately related. And yet in the Buddhist cosmology, apparently fear is related to the will anxiety to agitation and worry. Um, I read recently that the fourth hindrance was classified as agitation and anxiety. And I wanted you to say more about what well, it seems is something that doesn't fit for me. I guess I'd like to know.
Good one. All the defilements and all the hindrances are rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. And so it would be interesting to explore when the mind is agitated or when there's anxiety, that's, um, that hindrance or that state is singled out in the list of hindrances. But it's actually the restlessness or the agitation or the anxiety still is rooted in one of the other three. And I think my sense is that you'll find at different times that anxiety or restlessness could be associated with greed, it could be associated with fear and aversion, it could be associated with delusion. Well, I think delusion kind of is part of all of them. Delusion is part of greed and part of. What my sense of what you're asking really, um, the response would be to look very carefully at the space out of which the anxiety is happening or the restlessness or agitation is happening. There's something underneath that which is fueling it. And it could be a greed for something, it could be a fear or aversion of something. I think you could get underneath to a more root cause. And it would be interesting. I think that would be the way, really, of um, unlayering it. I have a question about sleep and dreams. Um, from the beginning, all the teachers have said, be mindful from the minute you wake up until the moment you go to sleep. Which leaves me wondering how you explain, or how Buddhist technology explains consciousness during sleep and how our practice, how our awake practice affects what happens um, while we're sleeping. And as far as dreams go, um, you've also said that as one becomes more aware of one dreams, eventually one doesn't dream at all. Now, I'm, I'm still dreaming. Although <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think I'm dreaming less, actually, than I was before I came here, but I'm wondering uh, both how dreams are explained, because they seem different to me than thoughts I have during the day, and also how you suggest that we work with dreams in terms of the practice uh, right now. In terms of understanding um, the kinds of consciousness involved in dreaming, Please ask Manindraji sometime, because I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's explained very precisely in, in the Abhidhamma analysis of consciousness. Um, but for that kind of explanation, you'd have to ask somebody who really had studied that. Mostly in this tradition of practice, there's not a lot of emphasis given to working with dreams. 
and in other traditions there are there there's um, you know particular techniques what happens as the practice goes on is people seem to go through different cycles there's one cycle when the dreams become very very vivid and intense and very archetypal well, as people go through these intense you know death dreams and survival dreams and very basic psychic stuff coming up. As that's cleared, both in the dream state and cleared in our practice. Because what we're doing... You know, sometimes, I th- sometimes people tend to separate the mind into compartments. The conscious mind and the subconscious and the unconscious. Rather than separate it into separate compartments like that, my sense is that it's much more a question of a threshold of awareness. And everything above the threshold is conscious, and everything below the threshold is subconscious. As we practice, that threshold changes. And so what was formerly subconscious starts to come up into the conscious mind. In other words, we're extending the range of our consciousness. So in both ways, because we're processing out in our waking state much more of that material, and also in our dreaming state, it's being processed, what seems to happen as people do a lot of intensive practice is that the dreams get less intense and less vivid and less frequent. As we're carrying less of a burden of things in our subconscious because we're more awake and more aware, that corresponds to um, a growing availability of energy and wakefulness, which is why people need to sleep less, generally. As we sleep less, we find that we actually go right into a deep sleep without much dreaming, and we wake up and proceed with the practice. That's sort of a, a description of how it happens. In terms of You know, the kinds of consciousness involved that, you'll have to ask someone else. You know, I don't know whether you have come to the great realization of how freeing it is not to know. <laughs> don't know is a great mind. That's a that's definitely another possibility. We tend to like to give each other a vacation.
Manindra says it is not necessary to answer that now. Did you hear the question in the back? <clears throat> the question was about the purifying power of that moment's experience of the unconditioned. Just what, what that power of purification is and whether each subsequent experience of the unconditioned state purifies in the same way. The power of that experience comes from its ability to uproot defilements from the mind so they don't arise again, which is different than the power of concentration, different than the power of metta, of loving-kindness, different than the power of morality, all of which serve to purify the mind, but not in the uprooting sense. It's that moment of the deepest opening or penetration that it has that unique ability to uproot certain defilements. And it's sequential, which is why there's a tremendously transformative um, transformation of the being in that. There There are two aspects to the unconditioned. And in the in the Buddhist psychology, they're called the path, path moment, and fruition moment. The path moment is that first opening which uproots the defilements. Following that, depending upon the level of samadhi, and then there's a fruition, fruition experience directly following it, depending on the level of concentration, people can then go into that unconditioned fruition state for longer or shorter periods of time, at will. In that fruition state, there's no further uprooting. It's it's the enjoyment of the unconditioned on that level. Then to proceed, one renounces that and starts the process all over again, doing exactly what we're doing, to reach the second path moment, which uproots further defilements. And then there's a fruition for that second path. That's how it... I realize the question really has to do with intent. Um, because it seems that one can either have the intent to um, process all kinds of things that come up in the mind and body until the body-mind comes to a sort of natural state of rest, or one can have the intent to just sort of allow that process to happen to a certain point and, and then develop concentration, really, and... and um, You can sort of, when clarity of mind really out of which that experience of the unconditioned comes, 
I didn't quite get it. Well, it seems it seems like one can either have the intent simply to practice in a very much more even way until the mind and body naturally come to a place of rest. Comes to a place of rest, meaning what? Meaning that, that there aren't accumulations arising out of the mind and body, that that, that, that is no longer happening. I mean, I've read that, that, that that's possible in a way. I think that's true. I think that it is important to understand why one is practicing, because then one can practice in alignment with that purpose. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is that as one practices, the intent can change. And, and it often does, because we might start out with a rather modest intention. I, want, I came here to lose weight, right? or to let my mind calm down a little bit, or to relax, de-stress the body which are totally legitimate aspirations. It's a letting go of suffering to some extent. But as people, as we all begin to examine and investigate the nature of the mind, the horizons get much bigger. We begin to see there are other possibilities. And so in our path of practice, the intention that we have and the motivation that we have may change along the way. But all along the way, I think it is helpful to have a sense of what one is doing and why. Could you say more about the role of women in the, the countries from which this tradition came? Because the tradition itself is not sexist, and not a man or woman in the process. But I gather that in the countries, it doesn't function in that way. And also, um, when you just talked about women saints and people more, and I'm just wondering what, what the reality is there. Mm. The reality, the question was in, in Buddhist countries, sort of the, the role of women. And I mean, the practice itself is is totally non-sexist and non-discriminatory. And, and how is it in, in Buddhist cultures? In every culture that the Buddha Dharma <coughs> developed in, there was a cultural overlay. Right? Because people were manifesting through their own culture. And so you find some pretty strong cultural expressions um, and some of those cultural expressions are definitely sexist. There's no doubt about it. In terms of the practice in those countries, you know, when people are actually practicing in a situation, uh, in a retreat center, a meditation center with a teacher, it's the same process. It's just like practicing here, which is why throughout Asia, there are as many or more women, 
enlightened women uh, than men. Arimunindra says there are quite a few more. That uh, women seem to, to go deeper in, in his experience in Asia. It's different. In each country, it's different. In India, there are, there are many women teachers. Uh, and that's where I had m- most of my experience. I don't know actually in Thailand and Burma. Uh, so, it's, no, there's definitely a cultural overlay, and that's there, and people who go there find it out very quickly. In terms of the actual teachings and the practice, it's just being with one's mind and body. Another day you said something that would prove very helpful. I'm hoping to clarify if I can ask you a question clearly. You said that if we look closely at desire, that we can see beneath it uh, a choice. And in fact, we uh, choose to want. Um, I've been looking at the time in fact there is a choice. Um, and, and so it's been possible when, when desire, some desire drama is playing out in mind, um, to say there, there was a choosing to want. And as soon as that happens, then the desire tends to dissipate. It's very useful. The tricky thing is that, that um, choosing not to want is very close, which is a wholesome action, seems very close to its uh, near enemy in depression of desire. Um, which is unwholesome. It's, it's basically forcibly pushing down desire. It's using a version of an antidote for it, for greed. Um, it seems very easy for the wholesome to become the unwholesome. It seems very easy for one to move into the other. I'm wondering if you've been talking about how, how, how to work with that. That's the same talk. (laughs) Because it really has to do with that same about understanding restraint. And you're quite right. It's It's often misunderstood and misapplied. And what is actually a very freeing and wholesome mind state can very easily turn into an unwholesome neurotic one. And so if you can be patient with it. But that's a very key, that's a very key point. Can one actually wish to practice? I mean, can you will yourself be mindful? Because those motives seem to be motives of the ego. There seems to be a very fine dividing line between what the ego wants and just letting it go. It's true. And I think that there is a quality of spiritual ambition which often creeps into the practice, which is really a manifestation of greed, you know, of the ego, of the I, which is very different. That kind of spiritual ambition is a very different mind state than the motivation to be awake, to be aware. And we just have to pay attention to, you know, 
that space out of which our practice is coming. background thoughts about it. It's impossible to understand the workings of karma with, uh, solely within the framework of one lifetime. And so if that's our framework, I think there'll always be tremendous doubt and questioning because it's obvious that within one lifetime it's not so. Right? And so the opening to the possibility of that being true really requires at least a willingness to consider that there are many lifetimes involved and that there are laws governing what happens over over those lifetimes. No, I think for most of us, not being brought up in particularly Buddhist culture, and for myself as well, I came to the practice with a tremendous amount of doubt and skepticism about that. You know, there was nothing particularly in my experience and nothing in the education. Um, What I found most helpful was expressed in a line by Coleridge in one of his poems in which he, he, he said, talked about the willing suspension of disbelief. Because disbelief is as much of a blinding factor as blind belief. So if we can just open ourselves to see, open ourselves to be receptive. A lot of intuitions of how the process is working begin to unfold. And my own growing receptivity to the notion of karma came from many sources. One, it came just from increased exposure to the idea of reading and hearing teachers and beginning just to consider it as a possibility. The other had to do with getting more precisely aware of how things were unfolding moment to moment and to see the process of conditioning involved. And so that instead of things apparently happening in a rather random or fortuitous way, this process here and now seemed to be unfolding in a very ordered way. That there were some very clearly, very clear patterns of conditioning which determine the unfolding. And as that sensitivity or openness got more refined, it's like the, the notion of karma became more real.
there are beings, although I don't happen to be one of them, who through their power of mind actually have the ability to see over past lives and have a better view of how you know, an act at one time brings about a result in, at another. So really, all I, what I would suggest is, is staying open to the possibility and paying attention to the unfolding of your experience. I was wondering how uh, the question about creed and practice relates to the factor of investigation. You'll have to say a little more, I think. Okay. Uh, it, it seems like investigation is almost sort of like saying that, that mindfulness isn't good enough or something. <laughs> <laughs> Mindfulness has the power to bring all those other factors of enlightenment to it. It's like a magnet, which is why it's so powerful. And you could think of... It's, it's almost like different facets of a diamond. Right? And each one has a particular kind of function. Mindfulness has the noticing function. Investigation has... Think of it as a kind of um, active looking carefully function, which goes along with mindfulness. You know? And so when the mindfulness is really strong, you will find that the investigation is there as well. But it's just that there's a separation of the slightly different emphasis of the function involved. Uh, with the noticing, there can also be that really careful seeing, for example, of impermanence, or the seeing of the selflessness, the seeing of the dukkha. Um, it's just a, it's an active quality of mind. They're not, they're not at all in conflict. They're, they're really complementary aspects. Does that answer your question? Is there some way you could explain that in a more uh, practical, like an example or something? Okay. The function of mindfulness is to notice what's present. Right? Be mindful of hearing or seeing or a sensation, mindful of a thought. The quality of investigation, and this would be a good time to, to mention something that I've been mentioning in most of my interviews, but to share it with all the rest of you as well. Those of you who have heard it, please be patient. An image that I've been playing with and working with people in the last week or so is that of a robot. Just imagine a robot, you know, walking around doing different things like, you know, has all these different functions that it's been programmed to do. Does a robot know what it's doing? It doesn't, it doesn't know, it's doing it. 
It's programmed in a particular way, but there's no knowing, there's no consciousness involved. The body is like a robot. The body is just material elements. It's different material, it's not made out of metal. It's made out of other material elements, but it has that it has the same characteristic of materiality to it. The body doesn't know anything. It's just like the robot doesn't know anything. So one of the things you can do as you walk around, sort of just play and, and keep a lightness of mind about it. Just play with observing the body being a robot. You know, the eating robot. No. The reason this may be helpful to you, perhaps, is that the image of robot, it's, it's quite easy to see, or quite easy to understand that the robot itself, there's no knowing. It's just matter, it's just, it's mechanical. The body is like a robot, but there's also something else going on. Because as this Joseph robot moves, in addition to the mechanical movement, there is also a parallel or concurrent stream of consciousness with it. Right? So there are these two things going on. There's the robot moving, the robot acting. The robot doesn't know anything. The robot is just matter. Along with the movement... there's also knowing of it. And that's what makes us different than you know, an IBM robot. The going in to each moment's experience and separating out these strands of the matter, of the material, and the concurrent strand of consciousness, going into each moment's experience and separating out those strands is a very important insight. It's really a doorway to much deeper levels of understanding because it's because for most of us these strands have become so intertwined. It's out of that intertwining that the sense of self, the sense of I is so strong. As you go into experience and separate these strands, it becomes quite clear that the robot is not self. The robot is just, it's just matter. As we see the strand of materiality, of matter, and likewise we see the strand of consciousness, of knowing, exactly at the same time. It doesn't, it's not before, it's not after. There's the matter, which is this. And at the same time, with this robot, is the knowing of it. So we begin to see very clearly that this thing we call self, this thing we call I, are just these parallel, concurrent processes going on. Like we begin to disentangle or separate out right, the confusion. That's a kind of investigation. It's like turning the mind to be mindful in a particular way.
That's a, I, I would encourage you to, to play with that one because it's a very important, it's a very important understanding. In the back. Okay, the f- so you already you asked two questions. <laughs> this robot is programmed for one. Um, it is helpful in terms of watching the breath or being mindful of the knowing of it. That's the same thing, the, the same exercise in terms of moving about and watching the robot move and being aware of both strands, right? The, the mechanical movement and the knowing of it. You can do the same thing with the breath. The breath is just matter. I mean, the breath entering the body is just matter. It doesn't know anything. The sensations don't know anything. It's just, just material elements, just like, just like you would have a machine breathing in and out. But in addition to the machine breathing in and out, simultaneous with it is this concurrent process of knowing the matter, knowing the material elements. And it is helpful to be mindful of that. Mindful of of the matter and mindful of the knowing. The question about the desire. What do you say? How to get rid of desire? Briefly, because I'm going to talk about it, you know, in a week or so in a talk. There are two ways. One is by simply being aware. What is a desire? It's manifests as a thought in the mind, usually. I want something. If we can be mindful enough to see that it is just a thought, just words in the mind, or certain sensations in the body, and we can be mindful simply of what's there without even a desire to get rid of it, just to see it for what it is, we're less and less identified with that thought. We're not biting on the hook of it. It's like these thoughts have hooks, you know, and they kind of pass through, and we're the fish. And some of them have very appetizing worms. Right? And so the thoughts come through, and then the thought carries us away. When we get a little savvy about the process, we learn we don't have to bite. Right? We can just, oh. There's, there's a little thought hook going by. Let it come and go. You didn't invite it. And by itself, it will go away. And so the mind gets very peaceful and very relaxed. It's just watching all of this stuff come and go. 
The other way that I mentioned and which Eric brought up has to do with seeing that at a very basic level we are choosing to bite. It's not just happening. And when we can get to that place of seeing the choice, then we have a choice of not doing it. Which is very freeing. You know, instead of being carried away by every thought or every desire that comes through, the mind stays peaceful. You know, they come and they go. We have a real, just a great balance of mind then. experience of that is that there's something which is feeding it. It hasn't always seemed to be a choice in the same way uh, that I've experienced a choice to want something. It might well be there, you know, and I just haven't seen it. But it is quite clear that with obsessive thoughts, there is definitely some conditioning factor, some fuel, which keeps them coming. Um, one of the, the most frequent fuels for them is the judging mind. In other words, if there are obsessing thoughts and the mind doesn't like it, that not liking it is going to be fueling the process. Well, there are a few ways. I'll give you an example of one that had come up in my practice a lot. After, after practicing for a few years and it started to get nice, I started having this totally obsessive thought, <clears throat> I'm a good yogi. You know, it's like with every breath, I'm a good yogi. Mm. <laughs> I'm really a good yogi. And the thought drove me nuts. <laughs> because good yogis don't have that thought. (laughs) So it was rather a double bind. (laughs) And so each time the thought came, there would be that internal wince. Just go away. Until I saw that the wincing, the aversion, the judgment of it, is what was keeping that going. And so as soon as I saw that, then it became possible to drop into the space of treating that thought as if it were saying the sky is blue, which is a technique I've recommended to some of you. Every time that thought came, I'm a good yogi, the sky is blue. Because my relationship to the sky is blue was totally okay. It just came and when there was no problem. As soon as that relationship to the thought I'm a good yogi was established, it stopped coming. Because I wasn't feeding it with aversion. And with, with repetitive patterns, whatever they are, whether it's obsessive thoughts or very recurring patterns of judgment or self-doubt or whatever, ones that you keep getting involved in, you might just tack on each time the sky is blue. Right? 
Right, right after, right, right. I can't do this, the sky is blue. I'm unworthy, the sky is blue. This is too hard, the sky is blue. You know, after a while you establish a much more humorous relationship to them. There's no real easy way. You know, it's one of the fruits of putting in your time. Because when you watch this stuff long enough, it sort of develops by itself. <laughs> and when you see the same old stuff you know, over and over and over and over again, after a while, and we respond you know, some of us learn quicker and some of us learn slower. But eventually we all learn. <laughs> Just not to take it so seriously. Because fundamentally it's all empty. You know, it's like going into a movie theater and getting totally embroiled in the movie. And sometimes it's a horror movie and sometimes it's a love story and sometimes it's an adventure. Forgetting that it's a movie. You go to enough movies, and after a while you don't forget. Right? And so you can see it and appreciate it and even enjoy it, but you don't forget that, that it's just a movie. Um, so basically, I would say keep practicing. The half smile sometimes works, literally. I mean, when you really feel like you're caught, if you sit with a half smile, Everybody now, just kind of a half smile. <laughs> it's, it's a help. Somebody once, some psychologist from Psychology Today once told me that actually the, there is a connection between the muscles of smiling and you know, the, the brain impulses or whatever. Sharon likes emphasizing meta more than other people. If she'd answered it, she probably would have right. said meta Right. That, that in that situation where the mind is really caught in um, the seriousness you know, and embroiled in it, losing the sense of joy or happiness, that doing even a few minutes of meta is a way also of opening the mind and making it spacious, giving it a perspective again, which I, it is helpful, I think. I have two questions, too. Um, so <laughs> Five 
things that are not the mental effect and those touching So there isn't really a machine. There's there's sensations and this concomitant knowing, isn't that? Yeah. The machine was just an image to kind of get a sense of the separation of functions. Second part, same question. Um, uh, relates to your fear and trust problems. The other night felt like we ran out of time. You still had some more things to say about trust, which I don't Okay, I can't remember exactly how far I got in it. So it may be a little repetitive. There are two kinds of trust that I found very helpful in practice and accessible to us. One is that sense of trusting the moment. Now, why is it that we find it so difficult to be present, that the mind is so you know, out of the moment so often? And I think it has to do with this quality of somehow, because of some conditioning, simply not trusting the moment's experience. When we come, when we settle back, just for example, In just hearing, without bell, without ear, without eye, without any superstructure around it, just there's a quality of trust in that. That is the settling back and opening up. And that trust is very powerful because each moment is presenting another another gift of an experience. It's either a sound or a sensation or a thought or an emotion or a sight. When we can settle back and trust the moment, we establish ourselves in a, it's a real refuge. That's what, in some sense, that's what taking refuge in the Dharma means. Taking refuge in the truth of each moment. So mindfulness, learning learning what mindfulness actually means. You know, beginning to experience the, the fullness of simply being present for each moment is tremendously liberating because when you were just hearing the sound and totally, totally just hearing, in that moment, was there any problem or any separation or any difficulty, or any I. If there was just the moment of hearing, it's like the moment's complete, the moment is full. Each moment is just like that. And so our practice is trusting the moment, settling back and opening to the hearing, or the sensing. Somebody mentioned 
to me in an interview a very nice image, which I'll share with you. You know, for those of you who like to dance, when you're dancing, is the point of the dancing to reach another spot on the floor? Probably not. <laughs> or to have it end? Mostly, you know, the, the point of the dancing is to enjoy the dance, to be there in each moment. And this process is just the same way. This process going on in each moment is a dance. It's a dance of elements. If we can settle back and trust it, then there's, then there's a real quality of joy and ease and rhythm and balance in our lives. It's when we don't trust it, that we keep ourselves away from it, that's when we get involved in struggle. So that's, that's one aspect of trust. The other, which comes out of this one, has to do with the trust it has to do with a direction of understanding that actually this unfolding process when we're not aware of it when we're not paying attention when we're not trusting the moment mostly it's just winding around in circles When we do understand it, it begins to have a direction, but it's not a direction in space, and it's not a direction in time. It's a direction of understanding. And so what we're doing with that kind of trust is suffusing each moment, suffusing each moment of experience with a quality of meaning, quality of significance. Not about particularly the object, but about the direction of understanding, that actually, in each moment, our understanding gets deeper, our understanding gets more open. And after some time in practice, one begins to trust that direction of understanding, and it gives the context then for everything that we go through in our lives. You know, whether it's intensive practice, or your relationships, or your work trip, or the political realm or the social realm, when we have that context of understanding, then our lives, each moment of our lives, takes on a much richer meaning. And so that's another, that's another quality of trust that opens to us in practice. I don't know if that was... Okay, I think... And be one last question. Um, I feel that I've gained more understanding about my practice and um, through investigating the dumb for reality and thought. I mean, I've, I've thought about certain, asked myself questions and, and an answer has come and I've asked another one and so on until I realised something that's really given a, a good impetus to my practice. And thinking is usually not advised, so I'm just wondering about 
that as opposed to some kind of reflection? <laughs> Sometimes thought can be used very skillfully, you know, uh, both as ways of reflection and also as ways of pointing the mind. A thought can be like an arrow, pointing the mind to a certain kind of experience. Uh, and it's true that both of those ways are, are part of the investigative process. There's another whole level of insight that comes when the mind is silent. Right? Another whole area of insight. Since most of us have developed a fair facility with the thought process and using it, the emphasis here is on training the mind to the possibility of silence and learning what comes out of that. So it's not to invalidate you know, what we can learn from thought, which is considerable, but it's to open up another, another area of insight and investigation. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.